I think the, the most frequently asked question I had this weekend was, how's Walt? And uh, Walt's doing pretty good. He's doing pretty good, uh, aren't you? <laughs> it's kind of good to see you back here. We didn't really expect you till next weekend, but this is good to see. Good to be back, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, tonight, we start tonight. Yes, tonight. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Turnabout's fair play, play huh? Uh, we start a new series, and, um, you know, we're real creative people here, so I called this new series A Party, a Meal, and a Stroll on the Lake. It has to do with Matthew chapter 14. Um, we just finished up the parables in chapter 13, and we're moving on to 14, which um, you'll see has Jesus doing more of the stuff that we talked about uh, earlier. But to begin chapter 14, there's this section that Matthew threw in that seems to not fit. It seems to be out of place when you, when you look at it by itself. I hope by next week you will see how it transitions into into the rest of chapter 14. One of the questions that I'm always asked when we talk about Herod is um, um, trying to get an understanding that there's more than one Herod. Everybody knows Herod the Great. There's a, um, there's a family tree on the back of your hand out there that we can look at very briefly. Herod the Great was the king um, who was ruling at the time that Jesus was born. He's the one that actually started the Herodian dynasty. He's the one that we're familiar with that the, um, the uh, wise men came to visit um, when Jesus was, well, a couple of years actually after Jesus was born. Um, that's jo- that's uh, Herod the Great. And I think we're supposed to have a slide up here, but it's not showing up for some reason. Maybe in maybe frozen somewhere in time. The uh, second one that I have on your, on your handout there is a fellow named Archelaus who was one of Herod the Great's sons. And we don't, we, we're not going to talk about him, so I just put him on here to show you where he fit in the family tree. On the other side is Herod Philip. And Herod Philip uh, was another son who ruled the northern part of Israel, the part that was known as Galilee. Uh, he's the one that built a, a fortress area in um, or a t- temple area up in the northern part of Israel called Caesarea Philippi, where a lot of pagan worship took place. It looks nothing like that today. There are just, just ruins, nothing else there today, but that's, that's the glory of it. This is the place where um, um, Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's over on the left-hand side here. You can't really tell, but there's a cave that goes into a into an underground river area that was known as the Gates of Hell. Uh, the one that we're going to be most um, interested in this evening is Herod Antipas, right there in the middle. Um, Herod Antipas, it says he was a weak king. He wasn't really a king. He was a tetrarch. And as a tetrarch, he um, um, had less power than a king. A, a, a tetrarch was kind of like a governor today. That, that would be... a, a fair comparison with the Tetrarch. He ruled both Galilee and Perea, which is present-day Jordan. He's the Herod that killed John the Baptist. He's the Herod that built this city on 
uh, the Sea of Galilee, known as Tiberias. Any, any of you that have ever been to Israel, that's the headquarters that we always have in the northern part of the country. The, the hotels are there, so you go to Tiberias and stay and then make day trips to the different sites that you're going to visit. And he's the one that tried Jesus that night before the execution. So that's Herod Antipas. Let's turn to our scripture, which is in Matthew chapter 14, and um, we're going to read verses 1 through 12, 1 through 12. Uh, in this church, we believe that the Bible is the infallible Word of God. It's the only rule for faith and life. So listen as we read God's Word here. Matthew 14, 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch, see, not the king, but the Tetrarch, heard the reports about Jesus and said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. And then he flashes back to what had happened. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias. This is his wife. His brother Philip's wife, for John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him, considered John, to be a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, Herodias, she said, "'Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist.'" The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. That's our scripture, a nice comforting scripture on a Monday night as we begin a new section uh, here from the book of Matthew. When I use the term Herod tonight, anytime, I'm talking about Herod Antipas, not, not one of the others. And I, I think I told you before that he's not really a king, though he's called a king. Uh, when John the Baptist denounced Herod for this... Uh, immoral behavior. He wasn't talking so much about the divorce because divorce was something that was allowed both in Roman law and in Jewish law. The problem was this second marriage, this illicit, incestuous second marriage to Philip's wife, Herodias. The marriage was explicitly uh, condemned in, in um, Scripture. In a couple of places we read, in Leviticus 18, 16, it says, Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. And Leviticus 20, 21 says, If a man marries his brother's wife, it is an act of impurity. He has dishonored his brother. Now, obviously, this had happened a few times if it's written into the laws. Obviously, this was something that... Um, was not um, unheard of, but it was considered to be um, immoral and, and condemned. Herod had brought John the Baptist from where he was doing his ministry to Herod's fortress in Perea, 
in a little place called Bethany. And uh, John continued face-to-face with Herod to denounce this marriage. He had spoken to the people about this horrible Herod and, and the second marriage that he had, but um, he didn't stop when he got before, before Herod himself. So Herod, instead of uh, um, doing away with John, he offered him a guest room in this fortress in a place that had bars on it and, and a guard outside to, you know, for careful watching, um, and he just kept him there. He kept him in, in that prison place. Herod wanted to kill John, it said. You know, we read that in verse uh, 5, I believe it was. But he was afraid to kill John because the people thought that John was a prophet. And he was afraid of the people. He had a, had a couple of run-ins with the, peop- with the people, as did Herod the Great earlier. Uh, Herodias, the wife of Herod, hated John even more than John did. I mean, even more than Herod did because uh, she couldn't stand this talk about the second marriage. This is what she wanted. This is what she had desired. And she urged Herod to kill John. But Herod... Um, as we said, was afraid to because of the people. And one day, that opportunity came knocking at her door for her to take advantage of the situation. You see, Herod threw this big party, and it, w- it must have been a great party because it's talked about even in Roman history books. The, Josephus talks about this party that, that Herod threw. And it wasn't a, wasn't a, okay, come over to my palace tonight from 8 till midnight. It lasted for a week. It was, it was, you know, a drunken orgy for an entire week that was going on, a huge thing. Herodias sent her daughter, who we're told is named Salome, sent Salome to dance before Herod and his guests. Now, she, Salome, would have been in her early teens, you know, 13, 14 years old. And it's not so unusual that... that a woman would come and perform for the men at a stag party like this. But it is very unusual that it would be a person of royalty and not a slave girl because they would be subject to the desires of the men. And the men, of course, would come up with all kinds of wonderful desires for them. Herodias the wife of Herod, certainly understood men. She, she probably had at some time or other danced at one of those parties herself. It wouldn't be unlike her. And she reasoned that Herod and his drunken friends would just be in awe and aroused by this young teen girl dancing for them. That's probably never happened to anybody, any of us or anybody that you knew where, that you know now where they've been wooed by some lustful desires, but that's what happened at this particular birthday party. The dance that she danced pleased Herod so much that he promised Salome anything she wanted. He said, I'll give you anything. You just name it. You name anything, and I'll give it to you. Your wish is my desire kind of thing. So the girl, Salome, prompted by her mother Herodias, said, I want John the Baptist's head on a silver platter. And Herod had made a vow that he had to keep, he thought. He should have never made that vow in the first place, and he certainly should have never kept it. 
but he wanted to save face. None of us ever got in that situation where we just couldn't turn back because we wanted to save face. Have we? He wanted to save face, and he granted Salome's request and had John beheaded right there in the prison. So the last of the Old Testament prophets died in the prison at Perea. And the Old Testament age came to a close in violence. The Old Testament, as you read through it, is a violent uh, section of Scripture. There was a lot of violence that took place, and it was no different as it ended with violence. So I want to look at the characters of some of these people that we looked at in uh, uh, the beginnings of Matthew chapter 14. The first is the character of John the Baptist himself. John was a righteous man. The Scriptures tell us in Mark 6, 19 through 20, So Herodias, that's his wife, Herod's wife, nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. Now this is from Mark 6, and if you want the whole gory details of what took place at this dinner and the beheading, Go to Mark 6 and read the expanded version. Matthew doesn't give us the whole version, but that's, that's what it was. John was a righteous man. And we, we just read earlier that at the time of Herod, this is Matthew 14, at the time Herod heard the reports about Jesus and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. He was a righteous man. John was also an outspoken man an outspoken man. It's one thing to be righteous, but it's an entirely different thing altogether to be outspoken about it, especially when you're standing before the great and powerful people of the world, like Herod. Um, Chuck Colson tells what he witnessed when he would bring visitors in to meet Richard Nixon, who was the president of the United States at the time, and Chuck Colson was his special legal counsel. This account's found in the book uh, that he wrote called Kingdoms in Conflict. Colson would gather the guests in a room outside the Oval Office where they would talk to each other about what they were going to tell the president when they were face-to-face with him. It was always the same, Colson wrote. In the reception room, they would rehearse their angry lines and reassure one another, I'll tell him what's going on. He's got to do something about this. And when the aide came and escorted us in... They'd set their jaw and march toward the door, but once the door swung open and the aide announced, the president will see you now, it was as if they had suddenly sniffed some intoxicating fragrance. Most became almost self-conscious about stepping on the plush blue carpet on which was sculpted the great seal of the United States of America. And Mr. Nixon's voice and presence like any president's, filled that entire room. Invariably, the lions of the waiting room became the lambs of the Oval Office, Colson said. But not John the Baptist. John the Baptist didn't cower before the worldly power in any way. He was not afraid of, of Herod. He spoke boldly, repeatedly saying to Herod, it's not lawful 
for you to have her, Herodias. Third thing is John was a courageous man. If that isn't enough, John was courageous. He knew the danger in which he was uh, exposing him, to which he was exposing himself by continuing this denouncement of the marriage that had taken place. You see, kings don't like to be confronted by anybody. Kings like to have yes men around. Richard Nixon liked to have yes men around. That was one of his problems, probably his biggest problem. If we are in leadership and we want to uh, do a commendable job in leadership, we should surround ourselves with people that have different opinions than us so that together we can reach a, a good decision on every issue that comes before us. Kings always like yes men. Even more dangerous for John was the hatred that Herodias had for him. I think for Herod, it was, it was sort of a game for him. For Herodias, it was like stuck in her craw. Every time she thought about John, she just seethed with anger. And John's fate reminds me of sort of the world we live in today, a world that to a large extent has rejected Jesus and will continue to reject his disciples, however good they are, and wherever they go, they will be rejected. Why? Because the world doesn't want to be told that it's sinful. The world doesn't like to hear that. The world doesn't want to be told that it's broken God's holy law. The world doesn't want to be told that it needs a Savior, a Savior who is Jesus Christ. And how can any be saved if we don't speak the truth about sin and teach the gospel boldly to those in the world, even the ones that are in power. That was John the Baptist. What about Herod, the character of King Herod? Herod was wicked. I mean, you know that from just reading this account. He was an evil man. He, was, he had seduced his uh, brother Philip's wife. He had wrongly imprisoned John and had consented to John's murder without any sort of trial at all. And that was an outrage to both the Romans and the Jews. There was a set uh, order for a uh, uh, person being uh, convicted and tried and, and uh, then the uh, penalty being meted out to them. And he didn't uh, pay any attention to any of that at all. Herod knew it was wrong. He knew it beyond the shadow of a doubt that what he had done was wrong. And it was his knowledge that it was wrong that caused him to suspect that John had returned, resurrected, when he uh, heard the reports about Jesus. Now, this is very interesting because Herod, we're told in Scripture, was a Sadducee. And we've told you a number of times about that little whip that says... A Sadducee is sad, you see, because he doesn't believe in the resurrection. Herod did not believe in the resurrection. He did not believe any, in any life after death. And yet, his guilty conscience made him tremble, I guess, when he thought about God's final judgment for him because of what he had done to John the Baptist. He's come back. That scared him. Herod was sly. 
Herod was crafty, shrewd, deceptive, uh, hypocritical, devious, wanting to kill John but afraid to kill John. Mark 6.20 says that Herod liked to listen to John. And as I read that uh, last week, I was thinking, wow, if he liked to listen to him, they must have had several conversations. And it's kind of like you bring an adversary in and you, and you listen to their position, and it kind of gives you uh, energy to listen to their uh, other opinions about it. So we can suppose that he talked to John a number of times when he was in front of him. Uh, Herod was weak. He was feeble, not, not physically feeble, but, but weak and feeble as many are who are more concerned about their reputations than they are about what's right and wrong. So often we're concerned more about how we look to other people than whether what we're doing is the right thing or not. He knew that ordering John's execution was an evil act, and he knew that he had blundered when he promised Salome anything she wanted because he was infatuated with her lustful dancing. But he was too weak to admit that he had made a mistake and too frightened of his wife's tantrums. And he was not going to uphold the moral law at any cost. You see, Herod would take a firm stand against wrong things, but he was weak on right things. He was very willing to take a firm stand on the wrong things. The fourth thing is Herod was superstitious. Many people who reject God's truth are superstitious, but nevertheless they have this they have this understanding and this awareness that there is right and wrong. I mean, you know some people that you would say, well, they're just good people. They, they just don't believe. They're good people. They're righteous people, maybe. But superstitious when they do the wrong things. Because there's a sense that we live in this moral universe and things cannot possibly go well for an evildoer that commits evil acts in this moral universe. Something's going to happen to them. They feel that. Many of them follow horoscopes. You know, they check the... Well, at that time, they wouldn't check the papers, but they check with their uh, astrologists to see what they should do the next day. Oh, what, where, where should I go? What should I say? Who should I meet with? And they can believe almost any bizarre spiritual idea that comes along. You see, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe anything, anything that comes along. That's Herod. What we have in the beginnings of chapter 14 is a collection of the worst of the worst of spiritual antiquity, I guess. Herod with his evil conscience, Herodias, a wicked and vengeful woman, Salome, already corrupted by her mother at a, at a very early age. She didn't stand a chance at life. Sensuous friends of, of Herod, so many that uh, we can't count them. And against all of them was John the Baptist, whom everybody knew to be righteous, outspoken, and courageous, pitted against the worst of the worst. But there's one more character 
mentioned here that we haven't talked about, and, and he's the most important of all, and that's Jesus himself. He was mentioned in the first verse about the reports of Jesus that had come to Herod, and he was mentioned in that last verse, verse 12, when John's disciples went and told Jesus what had happened to um, John the Baptist. Neither the citizens of Nazareth, nor Herodias, nor Salome, nor the drunken guests of Herod, none of them were offended by King Herod. Don't you find that interesting? I think it's because they were all like him to one degree or another. Nor were they offended by each other because they were like each other. You see, sinners like other sinners because they feel at home with them. Sinners like other sinners because they feel at home with them. When I was growing up, one of the, one of the phrases that I remember hearing over and over again um, when I would want to go out with a group was birds of a feather flock together, you know? We kind of can be known by the people we associate with. And if, if their consciences bother them because of some evil act that they've committed, they can always point to somebody else in the group that's a worse sinner than they are. After all, it's kind of comforting, isn't it, to know that we have a Herod in our group? And we can say, yeah, I did this, but he's worse than I am. Just look what he did. You don't get any help from other sinners, though. Other sinners don't make it possible for, for you to live an upright life. Nor do other sinners provide salvation for your life. Only Jesus does that. Only Jesus can do that. So in the final analysis, this, this section of Scripture that we're looking at here is not so much a contrast between King Herod and John the Baptist. It's a contrast between King Herod and King Jesus. You may wonder what happened to Herod after this account. It's really the last time we hear of him in, in uh, the Scripture. Some of the other Herods come along after that in the book of Acts. <laughs> but if, Hello. But a few, uh, a few years after this account took place, um, Herod's brother Agrippa I ascended to the, to the rule of the area that Philip had had. And he was, by Rome, he was appointed to be a king. Now, that had to get under Herod's crawl because he was a tetrarch, lower than a king. And even more than Herod, it got into the crawl of Herodias, who was always ambitious. And she started nagging Herod uh, about becoming a king. And she convinced him to go to Rome and talk to the emperor, who was Caligula at that time. She convinced him to go talk to Caligula and ask if he too could be appointed king. She wanted to be married to a king and not a king in Quotation marks. So he went to see Caligula in Rome. But before he could get to Caligula, a letter arrived to the emperor from Agrippa. And Agrippa had accused him of 
some treasonous dealings with the Parthians, the, the people to the east of him. And instead of becoming a king, Agrippa deposed Herod and banished him to Gaul. Gaul is where present-day uh, Spain and Portugal are, and it was like way far away from anything that was in the Roman Empire, as far away as you could go. And he was banished there, and that's where he died a few years later. I mean, think about it. Herod did what people in power do. He used his power to preserve his power. That's what they do. But in the end, he lost it all, and he died a pauper. Jesus laid down his power to die for his people. But today, he rules in glory, and he will forever and ever. Herod was a petty king, but he looked kingly and regal. Jesus is the king of kings, but his appearance was that of a humble Galilean servant, a peasant. It's kind of deceiving, isn't it? You can't always look at only the outward appearances. And when you look beyond the appearance and you see who Jesus really was, and you listen attentively to what Jesus said and taught, you soon find yourself agreeing with John the Baptist, who said in the book of John, chapter 1, I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. And also in that same chapter 1 of John, he said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. You see, John the Baptist trusted in Jesus, and he stood for righteousness, and he died for righteousness. And I think in what is a beautiful ending to an otherwise ugly portion of Scripture here, you see John, John's disciples came back and they took away the body of John and buried it. And as I was reading that, I was thinking, wow, how painful would that be to go retrieve the body of a friend that you had dearly loved the decapitated body of a friend that you had dearly loved and faithfully followed for all your life. How painful would that be? And verse 12 explains that after they had buried John the Baptist, his disciples went and told Jesus. And in verse 13, which is the beginnings of what we'll look at next week, we read, When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. See, after John the Baptist died, the handwriting was on the wall for Jesus. And he responded by withdrawing from the crowds. We saw him starting to do that in, in the 13th chapter of Matthew. He withdrew from the crowds and he began to teach privately those who he knew he was going to have to leave behind. 
He wanted them to know the special things about the kingdom of God. John the Baptist was the first martyr to die for Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself was the second. All the other 12 except John, the apostle John, uh, died a martyr's death. John died at an old, old man um, from natural causes. He had been exiled, but he was eventually released. Now, all those Christians in most part of the world today have relative freedom to practice their faith. Many believers suffer a fate like John the Baptist. You have heard of my friends Sundar and Sarita Tapa from Nepal, and they've actually spoken here before. And we got a letter from them saying uh, that they were in the they are in the United States right now because of the danger for Christian leaders in Nepal. It's very high at this time. They were threatened. Um, the The Hindu fanatics threatened to kill their boys threatened to kill people in their church, threatened to blow up the church, blow up their house. And for the safety of the others, they felt it was better if they came here for a while to let it cool down. Christians in other parts of the world, when they, when they convert to Christianity, when they become believers, their families disown them. Some of them declare them dead so that they can uh, get their property. And sometimes they even murder them. That's not unusual. Countless thousands of Christians forfeit their jobs, forfeit their freedom to worship, and forfeit even their right to train up their children in their faith. Many of them are tortured. Many of them are imprisoned. Many have to go into exile. But like John the Baptist, they will not deny their Lord, even to save their rights, even to save their freedoms, even to save their very lives. That's John the Baptist. That's the cousin of Jesus. And as Scott prayed earlier, we just have to be so thankful for where we are right now. In a week following a presidential election, in a day following the day that we honor our veterans, we need to take a moment to thank God that we were born here and not as the four of us on that mission trip to Haiti said, we could have been, just as easily we could have been born in Haiti or Indonesia or Africa or some other place. I don't know why, but God chose that we would be born here in the lap of luxury. The poorest person in America is rich. And in the lap of freedom. Let's thank Him for it. God, I just thank You. I thank You that in Your grace and in Your love for us, You saw fit to ordain this country to be founded on your principles. And God, we, we are so sorry for 
what has happened in this country, the way we've gotten away from your laws and your precepts. We say thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for us, to pay the penalty for our sins and to purchase us a place in heaven that we might spend eternity with you. And we say, please come, Holy Spirit, to fill each of us with the power that will enable us to do the things that you want us to do to further your kingdom here in this place and around the world. We give you praise for all that in Jesus' name. Amen.